ready to enjoy the Word of God this morning? Are you ready? Okay, get your Bibles, get them open if you haven't already got them to Matthew 24, 25, chapter 24, chapter 25. I'm going to be preaching from chapter 25. I'll tell you what verse in a moment. But let me set it up like this. Last week we were in Luke chapter 12, if you'll remember verse 54, where Jesus was chastising the religious leaders of his day for not being wise enough, uh, smart enough, uh, godly enough, biblical enough, discerning enough to be able to know the word that was given to them by the prophets, by the inspiration of the Holy, by, by God himself, by the Holy Spirit, and then to look at the signs around them, particularly in that context, the presence of Jesus himself doing the things that the scriptures said that the Messiah would do, saying the things that they said that he would say, uh, working the miracles that the scriptures had prophesied that only the Messiah could work, and here was Jesus doing these right in front of their faces. All of these things, Jesus was fulfilling prophecies right in front of their faces, performing miracles that only God in the flesh could do, and yet they were missing it all. They were missing the signs of the times. They were missing what was going on around them. And so here was Jesus, and, and, and instead of, of seeking his face more, instead of hailing him as the Messiah and the King, instead of drawing near to him and, 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 and seeking his wisdom and, and what it meant to be saved and to talk about the kingdom of God, instead they were constantly trying to trick him and to trip him up and, to re and, and ultimately to deliver him to a cross. He chastised them for that. He chastised them because they could not discern the times. He told them, if you'll remember, he said, you're better at telling the weather than you are at discerning the times. And then we extrapolated that to the times we live in. Now the home folks know, and for the sake of you guests, I, for the last year and a half or so, we've been in the study of the Word of God in the book of Revelation and wherever that took us from there. I mean, we've been over in the book of Daniel, we've been in Isaiah, we've been in Ezekiel, we've been in Matthew, Matthew 24, because there Jesus speaks a lot about the unfolding of the last day's times. And, and so for a year and a half or so, we were in the book of Revelation wherever it took us. And for those that, are, that have been here for a while, you know that I believe with all of my heart that more than likely we, the church, we are living in the trumpet days as prophesied in Revelation. For those of you that are hearing this for the very first time and wondering what in the world is he talking about, let me encourage you, let me invite you, let me urge you to go to our website because there I have a couple of PowerPoint presentations that I showed in church with explanation notes with it. You can catch up very quickly and see the amazing things that God showed me and our church family and is showing many others now all around the world. The amazing fulfillment of prophecy in our day and time that I believe is undeniable that is undeniable proof and evidence that we are living in the trumpet days of revelation as has been prophesied for 2,000 years. Our website, for those of you that are new here, is www.hickoryhammockbaptist.org. Don't put Hickory Hammock Baptist Church. Don't put HHBC. Just put Hickory Hammock Baptist. Run the words together, .org. And then right on the front page, down the bottom right-hand corner of the index page, it says, Are We Living in the Trumpet Days? And it says, Click here. And you click there and you can see those presentations. Now, having said that, and I did that for the sake of our guests because I don't want them to get lost in where I'm going this morning. Um, so once you see that, you will see and understand why I believe with all my heart that we are living in the trumpet days of Revelation. The trumpets are blowing. Now, what does that mean, living in the trumpet days? It simply means this. 
Of course, since the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and resurrection, the last days have been here. But you know, some 2,000 years of those last days have gone by. And so it's very tempting, in fact, the Bible prophesies that as it gets closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, that people would, you know, so many years would pass, basically, that people would begin to kind of get lackadaisical and say, ah, where is this coming of the Christ that is promised? Ever since the beginning, things have gone on like it has from the beginning. Since our forefathers, things have always been the same. Second Peter talks about that, prophesies that people would have that attitude in the last days. But I'm here to tell you that as it unfolds, Jesus was very clear in Matthew 24 with some specific things that were going to happen in the last days. Then we get into Revelation and it becomes even more clear and even more detailed and even more focused. Then you get into the unfolding of the trumpets and there's specific things that happen on the world front with names of those events that are given in the book of Revelation that correspond to world known events that have happened in our lifetime and it narrows the focus right down to Jesus saying that in, in, these, in these days, right in these days, is when everything's going to start happening quickly. And then he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Kind of like a thief in the night. Just bam. To a lot of people, it will be totally unexpected. Hopefully to the church. Hopefully to the born again. It won't. But what is this coming of the Lord we're talking about? Well, church, we know that means probably the very the, 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 the thing that will happen concerning the church, of course, is the rapture of the church. The taking out, the snatching away, the carrying away of those of us, Paul says, who are left, who are still alive at the coming of the Lord. We will be taken out of the way. Why taken out of the way? Because the very next thing that happens is God pours out His wrath on the unbelieving world before he establishes his throne and his kingdom that will reign forever and ever. Now, I kind of simplified that, but that's the teaching of the Word of God. Old Testament, by the way, as well as New Testament. The New Testament is just much more clear and much more detailed. I think we're living in those trumpet days. Now, if you say, Brother Carl, are you setting a date and a time? Or are you one of these guys that says, go sell everything you have and run to a mountaintop and wait on the Lord? Absolutely not. We don't know the day or the hour. But we should, as Jesus urged those in Matthew chapter 12, we should be discerners of the time. We should know the word. We should know it clearly. We should know it contextually. We should know the world going on around us and how it fits into biblical prophecy. That's why I do a lot of preaching and teaching on it. That's why we talk about it a lot in our Bible studies and Sunday school classes. Because we are to be handlers of the word in an accurate way. Workmen proven to be knowledgeable in the word of God. We are to be able to handle the word of God accurately. Amen? All right. And so, having said all of that, I don't want to be accused by Jesus <laughs> of being ignorant and undiscerning and have the world events just unfolding around me and me going just blindly walking around like I don't have a clue. I know the Word. I read the Bible. I see things unfolding. I watch the news. I'm aware of things going on in the world and even in, in nationally and even locally. I can see the signs of the times. Oh, the signs of the times to one degree or another have always been with us. They've always been here, but they are coming with more frequency and more detailed prophecies and exacting prophecies are being fulfilled right before our eyes. Now, very quickly, and then I want to get into my text, very quickly, most of you know that I believe with all of my heart that the major event that probably kind of kicked it all off was the rebirth of Israel in 1948. Because that had been foretold in the Old Testament scriptures because there was no Israel for thousands of years. 
But the Old Testament scriptures foretold of the coming back of Israel, the coming back of the people, restoring of their land and their language and their custom and their culture and their glory and their strength and their power. And for thousands of years, people marveled at that prophecy. For hundreds of years uh, uh, before 1948, modern day commentators on the scriptures would write about that and say, well, that must be in the millennial reign of Jesus after his return when he reestablishes Israel. People couldn't even comprehend that a real Israel could really reestablish itself in the Middle East as a nation with its original borders and its original language and its power and glory and strength. But in 1948, it started. And here we are, just a little less than 60 years later, and they are a superpower to be reckoned with, and we are their number one ally. Their number two ally is the birth nation of our nation, Great Britain. And here the three of us stand. And the whole world hates us. They hate Israel. They hate the United States. Hate Great Britain to one degree or another. Bastions of the Hebrew faith. Bastions of the Christian faith. Here's the United States sitting here with a declaration of independence and founding fathers proclaiming a belief in God and a creator and we are the ones that took the Jews in and protected them and delivered them by winning World War II. Others helped, of course, but uh, you know how all that unfolded and delivering many from the Nazi death camps and deliver, bringing them into the United States and there are still more Jews living in the United States than live in the nation of Israel itself, but people, the Jews are coming from all over the world. They're coming back to the nation, which is a direct fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of that very detail. It all started then. The countdown started. Because there are several Old Testament prophecies that say that the nation of Israel will be reborn in the last days. In the last days. Now, put that on the back burner. Come over into Matthew chapter 24, 25, but 24, just kind of glance at it as I paraphrase and go through it. We dealt with this when we were in Revelation, but this sets up the text that I'm going to be in this morning, Matthew 25. The disciples are with Jesus in downtown Jerusalem. Now, this, of course, a couple thousand years ago. The first thing they do is they look at the big temple and the buildings and the ornateness and the magnificence of it, and, and, the, and, the, and the disciples there for a moment are just kind of overwhelmed by the beauty of it. You've had that happen to you before where maybe you go to the mountains every year and you love it, but then just, you just look up. I mean, you've seen them a thousand times, but you just look up and say, gosh, that's beautiful. Well, that's kind of what the disciples did with the buildings and the temple and the splendor and everything. I mean, they'd seen it a thousand times, but on this day they were with the Lord and they looked up and said, wow, look at this, look at this, isn't this beautiful? And then Jesus pours water all over it by saying, you know what, there's coming a time when not one stone will be left upon another here. What? Well, they immediately begin to equate that with his returning to the earth, which he had prophesied, his coming again. And so they ask him, well, what will be the signs of this and, and your return? And, and in my humble opinion, in interpreting this passage of Scripture, he doesn't even really address to them when not one stone would be left on another, but rather he goes right into the signs of the last days. Because what would happen is, those words he spoke were in 30, 33 A.D. And in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and leveled the city and leveled the temple. In fact, I've been to Jerusalem and you can still see the remains of the old temple and the old temple mount with the stones just thrown down and still lying there in rubble. Huge, huge stones and, 
and boulders. And so, so that happened in 70 AD. But rather what he does in Matthew 24 is he begins to tell them the signs of the last days. And he gives them all kinds of signs. Some of them are rather general. Others are rather specific. But I find even specificity in the general ones in that once you see the unfolding of human events, I think I realize what he's talking about. When he says nation will rise against nation and be wars and rumors of wars, I, you know, I may be wrong here, but I think he was talking about World War II. When more than, more than any other time in history, more nations rose against nations. There were more nations, more people involved in that war than any other war in history. More people involved, more nations involved, more people killed than in any other time. And what happened out of that war? Israel was reborn. I think he kind of was starting there. I, I could be wrong now because it's written very general, but now that I've seen it all unfold, now that I understand the prophecies of Israel re re being reborn, now that I understand that, I look at that passage differently now. H how could he have explained World War II to his disciples back 2,000 years ago for them to understand? So rather, he put it in general terms. He said, nations will rise against nations all over the earth. Wars and rumors of wars all over the earth. And then he goes from there, and he goes down through famine and pestilence and disease, and of course, those things have always been with us, but as we now have 8 billion people on the planet, and wars, and rumors of wars, and chemicals, and e ecological disasters, and natural disasters, and I mean, you know, it's just, it's just mushrooming right before our very eyes. He talks about all that. He goes on a little bit further, oh, he talks about persecution of God's people, folks, and here in Milton, Florida, that can go right over our heads so quickly, but folks, it is horrible all over the world. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ this day will die simply because they love Jesus. It's so hard for us to imagine that, Milton, Florida. We, we sit in this nice air-conditioned building, sitting in these beautiful padded pews, listening to this awesome preacher. <laughs> Some people woke up. I said, what, what do you say? What do you say, honey? Um, did you tell a Boudreaux joke? I hear people laughing. And, and you know, it's hard for us to even imagine that, but it is unfolding all over the world. People who keep track of such figures, gruesome figures, say that the amount of people being killed for their Christian faith in total over the last uh, over the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years is more than over the last several hundreds of years combined. So it definitely is growing, this slaughtering and persecution of Christians worldwide. Thankfully, pr thank God, it hasn't come like that to Milton, Florida yet. But it is happening. And Jesus said that it would happen. I mean, you go on through there, and then you get to Matthew 24, verse 14, when he says something really amazing, when he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. Well, now, folks, when he uttered those words 2,000 years ago, that technology was impossible. There was no way. First of all, the whole world hadn't been discovered yet. Number one. Number two, it would not be until about 10 years ago did you hear me? Until about 10 years ago that the technology possible for taking the gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl would be available to the human race. It happened in our lifetime, and the gospel is being taken to all the world, to every man, woman, boy, and girl, as we speak this morning. 
by several major denominations who have made it their goal to make sure that in the next handful of years, every person on the planet will have heard the gospel. The Southern Baptist denomination is one of those major denominations. There are several others, and working together towards that goal, folks, that verse will be fulfilled in the next couple of years. And what did Jesus say about that fulfillment? And then the end will come. You're saying now, the end will come in the next couple of years? I'm not saying that. Anything can happen. I don't know what's going to happen to technology and the world and communications and the ability to get gospels in and out of nations. But I do know that for the first time in human history, that technology is available. It came available in our lifetime, and we are doing that scripture. I do know that. I believe we're in the trumpet days, folks. Jesus goes on to talk about that soon there would come a man who the whole world would look to, that desolation that causes, that abomination that causes desolation, as spoken of through the prophet Daniel. We know him as the Antichrist. Revelation 13 talks about him. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9 talks about him in great detail. We know that. Jesus told us that that was going to happen in Matthew 24. He said that somewhere in that time this guy would cause persecution and persecution and the saints would be delivered over to kings and judges and all on account of the name of Jesus. Jesus said, be, you know, be warned about those times, be careful about those times. And then you get near the end of Matthew 24 and Jesus says, now immediately after the tribulation of those days, what days? The days of the Antichrist persecuting God's people. He says, then you will see the sign of the Son of Man appear in the sky, and then the, the trumpet will blow, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear, and the angels of God will come and gather the elect from the four corners of the earth, and so shall we be with him. But I, I think that's a picture of the rapture. And he tells you when it's going to happen, sometime shortly after the appearance of the Antichrist. Then... As we continue with Matthew 24, he does a couple of other neat things. He says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, when the fig tree blooms, you'll know that all of these things are at hand and they're going to happen. What's the fig tree? Well, we know from other passages of Scripture, the fig tree is Israel. Jesus literally said, he gives these examples of everything that's going to happen. He says, when Israel is reborn, when Israel blooms, when the fig tree blooms, that generation that's alive won't pass away until all these things are completed. Now, if I'm interpreting that correctly and literally, then again, we're just a handful of decades away, perhaps, at the most, if, if I've got that correct. I'm just going by what Jesus said. And then the next thing he says, he says, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. I mean, see, after he answers their questions, then he goes into these parabolic explanations of himself. When he gives the details, there will be a war like you've never seen, nations against nations. He goes through pestilence, disease, persecution, then the abomination that causes, you know, and all these things, and then ending with the rapture as far as we Christians are concerned. And then he stops and he backs up and he says, now let me tell you more about those times. It's going to be in the fig tree times. When you see the fig tree bloom, that's when it's going to happen. Okay? Then he says, and it's going to be like the days of Noah. Well, what was the days of Noah like? Well, golly, folks, the days of Noah, people just went on with life. And in the meantime, there was an ark in Noah's backyard, the size of the Titanic. <laughs> this huge testimony before the world that impending judgment was on its way. What did the people do? They mocked him. And they went on with life, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, and acting as though there were no God and judgment would never fall. But it did. What has also happened after some 4,000 years in our lifetime, right after World War II, 
We had the technology to look down on top of Mount Ararat, and now you can go on the internet and there's all kinds of information. National Geographic's just done an article on it of the possible discovery of Noah's Ark on top of Mount Ararat. What did Jesus say about the last days? He said it would be like it was in the days of Noah. What was the testimony to the world of coming judgment? An ark that the whole world could see. What's happening now such that National Geographic is reporting on it? We're beginning to see the ark again like the days of Noah in the last days. The ice is melting. Pieces of it are sticking up. National Geographic reports this, not, not some crazy preacher. Read it, read it in old godless secular National Geographic. Pieces of it are sticking up. God's exposing it. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 2,000 years ago? He said the end, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Then the next thing he does, he tells some parables. He tells the parable of the ten virgins. you remember that? Now, that's not my text this morning, but just want to remind you, five were wise, five were foolish. What were they doing? They were waiting on a bridegroom. Now, this comes out of ancient Hebrew tradition and culture about Hebrew weddings and all that. And I'll probably preach on that later. I've done it before in the past. I may go back to that in a few Sundays from now. But just bottom line is, is that five of them were waiting on the Lord, ready to go, had everything prepared, knew that the master was coming, knew that he was gone for a little while, but knew that the bridegroom was coming to get his bride. And they were ready. But the inference is, and the, and the emphasis of that text really is on the five who were not ready. The five who were just floating along, they were with the others thinking, well, you know, I, don't, I can borrow something from the others at the last if I need it. And boom, the trumpet blew, the bridegroom came, the five that were ready went with him, the five that weren't couldn't, and they tried to borrow from the five that were ready, give us some of your stuff. And they said, you know, go get your own. Folks, you can't get to heaven on someone else's salvation. You can't get to, someone, to heaven on someone else's borrowed oil. <laughs> You, know, you, know, you can't get to heaven on religiosity. You get to heaven with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Have the oil, have the Holy Spirit in your vial, be ready to go. Okay, so he's telling this parable. What's that parable in relation to? The trumpet days, the last days, the days of Noah. When the ark is sitting on top of the mountain, <laughs> the days of the fig tree, when Israel is sitting there in the Middle East as a nation that cannot be defeated. Those are the days to be ready. That parable starts off by saying, at that time, look at, look at Matthew 24 and it's verse, um, uh, excuse me, chapter 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. At what time? Well, at the time of Matthew 24. Well, what's Matthew 24? Well, it's the fig tree time. It's the t Noah time. It's the rapture time. It's the return of the Lord time. It's, it's at that time. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Okay? But now watch. Come down to verse 12 of chapter 25. And here's where I want to focus for a few more moments, and then we'll dismiss. But we've got time. Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse 14. I said 12. Verse 14. Now he tells a parable. And we know it as the parable of the talents. And look what he says. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Stop and look at me for a moment. If you have the King James, it says, I think it says something about, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, the words the kingdom of heaven are not in the original text. That's why the NIV left it out. But it's okay. 
because the King James has it correct as well because they're keying in on verse 1 of chapter 25 because Jesus is telling parables about the last days and he's talking about God's people and the things of God, the kingdom of heaven. It'll be like this. And so he tells the parable of the ten virgins. But now he tells another one. This is what I want to focus on this morning. This is what God's burned in my heart. And there's a message here for us all. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, Jesus is still having this conversation with his disciples about the last days, and he's still explaining to them the prophecies of the last days, and now he's doing it in parabolic terms, and he's giving words of warning, words of instruction to the generation that will be alive in the trumpet days, and folks, I believe that's us, so this parable is about us. And listen to what he says. Again, it will be like a man, or the, it, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money. That word talent is a unit of weight of silver. So it's a lot of money. And it, 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 the amount of money doesn't matter. It's just basically saying this man gave to his servant a huge gift, a wonderful gift that represented his life. Okay? So to one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents of money, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now the man who'd received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gathered five more, or gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. That the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, or the King James says, buried it in the earth, and the translations are proper either way. Buried it in the earth, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with the good things, a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come now and share your master's happiness. Those are words I want to hear one day. How about you? Okay? Look at the next one. Now the man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents? See, I have gained two more. His master replied, you evil servant, why didn't you bring to me five like the first man? It doesn't say that. See, those of you that aren't reading your Bibles now, see how you got misled right quick? No. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Okay? You got that? The two guys, one with five, one with two. Both of them doubled it. Both of them came back. The master was pleased with both of them equally. We're going to come back and talk about that in a moment. But now again, just as in the five foolish versions, the focus seems to kind of be there. Now we come to the one guy who had the one talent. And he went and buried it in the ground. And this seems to be the main focus of this whole thing. It seems to be the main word of warning here. Let's see what Jesus says parabolically about this guy. Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. You know, that was not a real wise thing to say right up front to the guy, I wouldn't think. But anyway... So I was afraid. I went out and hid your talent in the ground. So, see, here's what belongs to you. In other words, look at the gift I'm giving you. <laughs> His master replied, 
you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. But take the talent from him, that is the one, give it to the one who has the ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, let's stop and look at this for a moment. Say, Carl, well, why did you talk for 30 minutes before you got there? Because I wanted it to be in context. The context here is not just some cute little parable that we can just pull out and, and say, well, see here that preachers can beat up church people with. And see, you're supposed to be faithful. You're supposed to bring your money in here and tithe. <laughs> That's not what it's about. Okay? The context is, the context is Jesus has just finished giving exacting detail and some general detail that I think has become exacting of prophecies concerning the last days. Then he moves into, it'll be like the fig tree. It'll be like the days of Noah. Then he says, now let me tell you some parables. He says, figure these spiritual stories out. It'll be like ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come. Five were ready, five weren't. Five went, five got left. When the trumpet blew and the bridegroom, five went up to be with him. Five got left. And the five that left sadly thought they could ride in on the coattails of the others, but they found out too late they couldn't. He says, and it'll be like something else. He says, let me tell you another story. It'll be like this in the last days, in the trumpet days. It'll be like this. Three servants. Master went off. He said he entrusted them with talents. Five, two, and one. Now, you might begin right up front saying, well, that's not fair. But listen to the fairness. The servant did it each according to his ability. And when they went and earned their interest, the master was equally pleased with both of them. So it wasn't a matter of the amount so much as the faithfulness of what they did with what they had. All right, now let's talk about the first two and then the last one because they're markedly different. The first two honored the master. These first two guys. Well, obviously, I believe the parable, I believe the parable is about the, guy, the, the, the master that went off for a while and then was coming back. That's the, that, Jesus is talking about himself. <laughs> He's getting ready to go off. <laughs> To go be with the Father, seated at the right hand of the, of the Father. But he's also going to come back one day, right? Amen? Are you with me? I know I'm a boring preacher, but y'all hang on now. It's only just five more minutes now. So he's going to come back. And so he says, but before I go, he says, here's the deal. I'm giving one this mount, one this mount, one five, one two. And I gave another one, one talent, according to their abilities. And when I come back, I want to see what's happened. Now watch. When he comes back, did you notice something interesting about the two? He gave one five talents, one two talents, and each of them doubled their talents. Doubled. I think, now I may be reading a little too much into it, but I don't think so. I think what that doubling represents, watch. That doubling represents that the talents that were given to these guys represented the gift of life, if you will, represented the gift that God, we know that's Jesus, that the Creator gave to them. These guys were wise, and they doubled their life. Folks, how can you double your life? 
Anybody know? Surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, being born again, your life has just been doubled. Do you hear me? You will live this life, and then you will live again forever in the presence of the Lord. Your life will be doubled. So when we are born again, we become wise servants of the God who gave us life. When we bow our knee to Jesus Christ, we become wise servants of giving back the life God has given to us, reinvesting it in His hands, receiving eternal life, doubling our life, and then serving Him faithfully with our life to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And God rewards us equally according to our ability and what God has given to us. He doesn't ask everybody here to be Carl Gallup's, and he doesn't ask Carl Gallup's to be everybody here. He doesn't ask you to be what your neighbor is. He doesn't ask you to do the same thing, serve the same way. But he asks all of us who have doubled our life by surrendering our life to Jesus Christ, he asks all of us to be faithful where we are and to be faithful with what we have. Amen? He asks all of us to live to lift up Jesus. And folks, I'm telling you, to be saved is glorious. To know that you're born again is awesome. But don't waste your salvation. Don't squander it by sitting back and not using your life to bring glory to God. And there's a thousand different ways you can do that. There's 998 ways at Hickory Hammock Baptist Church you can do that. But the wise and faithful servants were those who doubled the life that was given to them. And then they were faithful with it. And what was the master's promise after he said to them, well done, this is good. And because you've been faithful with what you have, more will be given to you. I believe with all my heart that speaks of the life to come. What's going to happen after all has been settled on this earth, after the judgment has been poured out, after the throne has been set in place? And the Bible says that God's children will rule and reign with Jesus forever and ever. Rule and reign where and how and what? Who knows? God's just going to do it. And what if He just does it all again and includes us as it? Who knows what it is? But we're not going to be floating on a cloud playing a harp for 10 billion years. Oh, we will worship, we will adore Him, we will praise Him, but we will also be ruling and reigning with Him. We will be serving with Him. And we, we will be rewarded according to the faithfulness of what we did with the salvation that God gave us. So children of God, those of you who have doubled your life by bowing your knee to Jesus Christ, let me encourage you and urge you, and I'm looking into the faces of so many faithful folks, but let me just say to you, Please use the gift that God has given you to live to lift Him up, to give back to the kingdom of God, to invest your money, yes, your money, your time, yes, your time, your life, your talents, your gifts, invest them in the kingdom of God. Enjoy this life. Enjoy all that God has blessed you with. Enjoy the things He's given you. Enjoy your hobbies, your friends, your good times. Enjoy your family. But also use all of that. Use your life in the investment of the kingdom of God so that when it's all over, you will hear the Lord say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not only did you double your life, but you took the gifts I gave you, and I don't require you to do any more than what I gave you. You took the gifts I gave you, and you served me. Does that make sense? Watch. But then the focus shifts to this other one. Now, what confuses a lot of people about this parable is the word servant is used. Three servants. And so immediately people think, well, those are three, three saved people, but one of them gets thrown in hell. Right? That's what it kind of sounds like there at the last. Said, but you wicked servant, throw him into the darkness and outer darkness and gnashing and wailing of teeth. You know, okay, 
Well, but that's a description of everything Jesus talked about hell. So you, you can't lose your salvation. A Christian is not thrown into hell because they didn't tithe enough. <laughs> I don't care what the Roman Catholic Church says. <laughs> a Christian isn't thrown into hell because they didn't serve on enough committees. I don't care what the Baptist Church says. <laughs> I see some Catholics here got mad at me a minute ago, but see now, see, see I'm fair. <laughs> I discriminate equally. I bash all the denominations. <laughs> That's not what it's about. The word servant, don't let it confuse you. Folks, please remember how quickly we forget this. Every single human being on the face of the earth, 8 billion people that are drawing a breath and their heart is beating, they are subject and servants of the Most High God. God uses them as He wishes. He gave them life. He gives us breath. Some will bow their knee and give their life back to that God that gave them. Others will reject Him and put their hand in His face and do it like Frank Sinatra says, my way. But we're all subjects and servants, all of us. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will bow and confess that because He's Lord and Savior. Others will bow it in fear and trembling because now He's the judge of their life and they know that their destiny is hell. But every knee must bow. Satan, smut face himself, will bow one day and say, Jesus Christ, you're Lord, I'm not. I'm sorry, I pretended I was you. One day, every knee will bow. So this last servant does not represent a Christian that lost his salvation. It represents one of the human race in those last days particularly, in the trumpet days particularly, when the trumpets were blowing and the evidence was there and Israel was being reborn and the ark was on Mount Ararat and, the, and preachers like Carl were talking about the trumpets and showing the evidence and it was there and the internet was spreading it and cable TV was spreading it and radio was spreading it and missions was spreading it and airplanes carrying missionaries all over. It was being spread all over but there was still one servant. Watch who took the gift of life, and where did he put it? He buried it in the earth. He became an earthly man. He just became a man of the earth, a worldly man. I'm a man of the world. Don't need all this Jesus stuff. That's for sissies. <laughs> 